I am Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. This Spin, our weekly all-women of color media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, we end this month's The Consent Convo, a public conversation campaign on consent. Throughout October, The Spin and The Consent Convo explores, interrogates, reframes and reimagines consent with women and men. We talk the personal, the familial, the political, the societal and the cultural. We ask, what did we learn? What do we need to unlearn? How do we create a consent positive environment? The Consent Convo is brought to you by The Spin and Emotional Justice in partnership with Ebony.com. Check out Ebony.com every Thursday where they will post each show plus an article on the conversation contributors. Consent, unlearning, reframing, reimagining, all of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Stacey Ann Chin and Dr. Treva B. Lindsay. Stacey Ann Chin is a Jamaican-born Brooklyn poet, playwright, activist, and mama. Stacey Ann co-wrote the Tony Award-nominated Def Jam Poetry on Broadway. Her work has been featured in the New York Times and Washington Post. Stacey Ann's debut memoir is The Other Side of Paradise. Right now, Stacey Ann is performing in Motherstruck, her one-woman show that chronicled her journey to motherhood. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay is an Associate Professor of Women's, Gender and Sexuality Studies at The Ohio State University and the inaugural Equity for Women and Girls of Color Fellow at Harvard University. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. Consent. You are two brilliant black women, one an immigrant from Jamaica, now American, one African-American. You are two survivors of sexual violence. In the United States, we know these numbers. One in six women will be a victim of sexual assault, that every two minutes in the United States, a woman is sexually assaulted. We know that college-aged adults are at higher risk of sexual violence, and we know those numbers from RAIN, the Rape and Incest National Network. Let's go global. In Ghana, studies show that girls aged 10 to 18 are most at risk of sexual violence. 6% of girls and young women had been threatened by a school teacher or principal that their education would suffer if they did not have sex. A 2014 report by Plan Ghana, which is an international child-centered community development organization, revealed that out of 100 cases involving children who had been sexually assaulted or molested, 53 of them occurred at school. In Nigeria, a 2014 report by Global Health Action revealed a survey's results that 31.4% of sexually active adolescent girls and women reported their first sexual encounter was rape. Other reports show that 4 to 6% of all adolescent girls in southwestern Nigeria experience rape. In Jamaica, police statistics recorded 748 incidents of rape in 2011. That was a 6% jump compared to 704 the year before, And in a year when reported murders and shootings declined by between 13 and 22 percent, rape 
sexual assault was on the increase. In Kenya, a report by Sinclair showed that building self-defense skills of girls in Kenya significantly reduced incidents of rape over a 10-month period, therefore reinforcing teaching girls that they can prevent sexual violence and not teaching boys or men not to rape. But we know numbers only tell partial stories. How do you reintroduce your body to consent when that consent has been violated? How does that shape your relationship to sex, to men, to women? What does consent mean to you and for you? Can we explore reframing and reimagining a consent model that centralizes survivors of sexual violence? What might that look like to you and for you? If you go back to before the sexual violence, how did you learn about consent? Who taught you? How did that teaching shape your relationship to your body, sex, power, men and women? What was the environment that you came up in and how did it shape your notions of femininity and sex? And how did family and culture influence that teaching for you? So let's talk consent and sexual violence survivors. Stacey Anshin, let me start with you. Those numbers, I know them so well. I hear them so often. And yet every time I hear them, you know, I just want to fold my forehead to my knee and not move at all. It's just amazing, even for those of us who do this work every day, all day, how it still paralyzes us to know the uphill battle of reclaiming our bodies after violation. I'm the mother of a four-year-old, almost five-year-old, and I see the way she moves her body with such freedom. I see how easy she is with moving through the world. I see how clearly she tells everyone, do not touch me. I see how easily she reaches out to touch someone if she needs to be connected to somebody. And um, I spend a lot of time wondering when if at all I had that for myself. And I cannot remember a time when I had that freedom where I knew that the boundaries of my body were mine to always draw. I go back to as young as maybe a toddler, and I've always understood that I had no power over my body. I always understood that it was something I had to negotiate, something I had to win the argument, and if I lost the argument, then I would lose the right to choose to make decisions about my body. And I think that follows me now. I think that informs how it is that I'm intimate with people. I think I struggle with it. I think I wrestle with it every day. I think I wake up every day trying to figure out how do I do this thing that I know is the best thing for me, even as I'm pressed nose to a wall that feels like it doesn't move some days. And other days it feels like it shifts a little bit. Dr. Trevor B. Lindsay. I to have a similar experience whenever I hear those statistics. It's still every time it feels like the first time I'm hearing them and lets me know, unfortunately, a particular kind of sisterhood that I belong to that I wish no one ever had to be indoctrinated into of being a survivor, of being a victim, of being someone who has experienced that kind of violence on their bodies. And it ranges in age for all of us. I would say in my household, my parents were actually very adamant about me not having to give hugs to people I didn't want to, not having to touch people if I didn't want to. They put me in dance really early, which in one part was because I had no rhythm as a child and the Lindsays refused to have a, a rhythmless little black child in Northeast Washington, D.C. But the other part of that was they wanted me to be very conscientious about my body and to understand my body and to love my body. As a Black girl growing up in the 80s, I, I knew there was something very pressing about, and especially my father really wanting 
to make sure I understood and felt a little bit of that freedom in my body. But I can remember as early as four or five little boys touching me, older boys touching me in ways that made me uncomfortable and having a little bit of language of saying no, but my immediate response having to question whether I had the right to say no. And so when I think about moving into adolescence and that age range, you said 10 to 18, all over the world, we're seeing these numbers, especially for black girls and girls of color, that it's almost half of us experience that sexual violence before we even hit 18. To saying that those lessons were difficult to keep and to hold on to as I started engaging with people and more and more boys and men felt liberties with my body that I didn't yet feel that I had the freedom to say no and to understand what it meant to identify that as violence. I could identify it as something I didn't like. I could identify it as something that didn't feel very good. But the language around consent, rape, violence did not come into my daily conversation, into my daily understanding of what happened to me and so many young girls that I know until I got to college. So this was years after my first encounter with sexual violence that I actually got the language to say, oh my goodness, this is what happened. This kind of violence happened to me. And I think that taught me so much about what I didn't know and how many bad lessons I'd gotten, mostly from society, I wouldn't say per se my household, but in society at large and even the communities that I was in, that consent was not something that I had to give in order for people to have access to my body. I didn't have parents when I came into the world. I mean, I must have had biological parents, but my mother left when I was born and my father never came forward to step into that role at all. And so I think that I was a child up until I was maybe 15 or 16, that I was at the mercy of the kindness of strangers or family members who would have me. And so I understood very clearly that my place in the home was not guaranteed. And if I, you know, I don't know, I became a kid that didn't have protection. And so I was fair game for anyone looking on. From as young as I can remember, I felt, you know, hands on my body, people touching me in ways that didn't feel good, but I didn't quite know exactly how to navigate it because being loud or making too much noise would mean that I could lose the place I lived in. My grandmother and I would be kicked out or something like that. When Esther mentioned the 10 to 18, I, I definitely had a little bit of chest you know, arresting there where I think of myself as 10 and I think of myself to 18. And those are the years when you really start to understand, start to pay attention to, start to focus on what it is that makes you a sexual being, what it is that makes you a being that feels deeply within the carnal. And if those are the years when you are most at risk, there's something deeply painful about that. And I hear you listing the countries, Esther, and so many of those countries are populated largely by black girls. And it, it further, you know, made me hurt so much. I was like, my God, do we have to bear the brunt of everything that is horrific in the world, including the center of where our pleasure lives and, and grows. And, you know, I'm 43 years old, almost 44, and still aching, yearning, working so hard to find intimacy because of this history of sexual violation and boundary breaking of my own body. It's an uphill battle. It's a daily battle. And I spent my entire adult life being a fierce activist, feminist warrior, and I'm definitely a tiger mama with my own daughter. But it's crazy how I have no issue with stepping into a sexual space, as in, like, if I want to be intimate with someone, 
I make the choice and I, I, I move towards it. But it's the intimacy that gets you. And sometimes it all becomes very complicated and, and very messy. And you're always slogging through this bog walk of crazy quicksand. And I don't know if I'm being very eloquent, but it just feels very much like it's an uphill battle. And the struggle to create intimacy in your spaces with your partners, with your very good friends, it just is like a lifelong battle even if you seem to have conquered it inside of your head, inside of the cognitive, where I know what consent is, I know what I should have, I know how I should move forward in the world. You know, if anybody touches me without permission, now it's a very straightforward conversation. But still, I struggle with creating intimacy and holding, you know, intimate spaces as safe spaces. So I wonder two things. Often we've I've heard a lot of different contributors talk about becoming aware of the word consent around the no means no campaigns. And that is very much how the public discourse around consent as it relates to sexual assault is had in the public. It's very much about no means no, this idea of telling girls and women to somehow prevent sexual assault, to prevent rape is an outrage. Men need to be taught not to rape, not to sexually assault. And part of what I wanted to do with the consent convo is actually shift our entire frame and actually explore and ask when you've said yes, when you say yes, what has informed that yes? And as pre and post being survivors of sexual violence, how does the yes and what informs the yes change as a result of being a survivor and your relationship to your body and the idea of of permission, finding pleasure in permission? I didn't get to say yes before. My first experience with intimate touch in that way, to that sense of way, was violence. And so my understanding of a pre or post is really interesting. There's only a post in that sense, that my sexuality and my understanding of my body, unfortunately, like it, it begins with the kind of logics of trauma and a violent encounter with my body beyond my own kind of a little bit of self-exploration that I had done previous incidences of violence. But I think in the post moment, initially, my response was to look back and see so many sexually coercive situations, so many things that fit under this broad umbrella of sexual violence that became part of this. I realized how many men in my life, boys in my life, were committing acts of sexual violence against a number of women, including myself, as I was growing up. So although rape is one part of my story, I can think back to all of these instances where the no means no mode is just inadequate for encompassing what it means to really think about, do I desire this? Do I want this? Do I want this and not that? Do I feel good about it? Do I feel a connection to the act, to the person, to the moment? How do I feel after the moment? How did I feel before the moment? And that didn't really come to me until I actually let go of the no means no framework for understanding violence. And I also committed to pleasure in a deliberate and intentional way as part of my own transformation. I won't even say restoration because restorative would suggest that there was a wholeness before this moment, that there was some point where sexual violence wasn't part of how I thought about sexuality. So transformative for me meant centering pleasure and asking myself, what do I want out of encounters of intimacy? How do I choose? And then how do I engage people who don't have that same level or understanding of consent, which is part of the trouble in finding intimacy in this context, because 
I would say widespread across the board, I still feel like most people, but particularly most men and boys, aren't learning about consent, aren't hearing about consent, and stop at the no means no framing of consent as this verbal one-time act that allows for so much. And what that does is, one, it decenters the ability to actually talk about affirmative and enthusiastic consent, but it also devalues pressure. It doesn't actually ask, what do you want out of this intimate encounter? And when we center pleasure in this conversation as well, I think it also shifts how we can begin to think about consent on new and transformative terms that allow space for survivors to truly dictate and reimagine intimacy outside of the constrictions of violence. Stacey Anshin. I think, you know, the, the no means no conversation has certainly been an incomplete one. I'm clear that we need to talk about audible language signaling of consent, but I think that it cannot stop there. I agree that we have to take it further and that we have to ask these questions about pleasure and desire and creating equal power dynamics within the context of those questions. Uh, you know, like sex is a thing that is co-created and for such a long time, for, you know, as long as I can suss out from the literature that I've read, from the Bible to the great works of literature to the oral stories passed along from mouth to mouth, that pleasure has always been in the hands of the man. Even the way we think about, you know, a woman's first sexual experience, you know, she is giving away her virginity. He doesn't lose anything. In fact, from the language, it means that this man gains something. And as a lesbian, I mean, it's a very heteronormative idea of sex. And I think one of the most interesting things that have happened to me in my sexual life is when I started having sex with women, that it removed the center of pleasure being a male location for me. And all of a sudden, I had to decide how to be a sexual creature where it wasn't about, okay, how do I make this man happy? How do I become a good lover for this man? In a weird kind of way, it shifted this in a weird way for me where it made me say, okay, how do I make pleasure for this woman? And so it hasn't been the kind of space where the other partner decides but maybe where I decide that the other partner's pleasure is more important than mine and therefore more the center of focus. And for me specifically, what I've done to escape the complications of pleasure inside of my own body is to center my partner's pleasure, as in I'm a good lover if I can make her have a good time and then I don't have to think about the complicated spaces in which intimacy and sex and my own pleasure come into the conversation. And what has happened is that I've had lovers who feel very distant from me because they feel as if they don't have access to me and my own pleasure, but because I'm kind of sitting on a Pandora's box, on a cauldron of explosive experiences that I'm not quite sure what will happen to me if I open the pleasure. The woman, my partner's pleasure has been like the center of the world for me. And I'm thinking about it and I'm very shaken by the questions that you ask, as in, how to center your own pleasure because the idea of decentering any person's pleasure has been just not the focus of, of my own uh, sexual pleasure. It's really just about what I've maybe done is, is shifted an old narrative into a new situation and try to, like, I, I'm not exploitative and no one's exploiting anyone, so therefore this must be good sex. And, and so at 43, I'm like reeling a little bit from this conversation. I, I started by saying that Esther has a habit of starting conversations that make my world, you know, turn upside down. And this is maybe the most true of that phenomenon in that it really is like there's no way to come to any kind of like end goal, like final definitive statement about survival of sexual trauma and pulling consent into the, the conversation. It's 
it, it really is this kind of massive turning around of everything that you've known before. And to center my own pleasure is foreign and difficult and it doesn't always turn out that way because when I center my own pleasure, being a survivor, it's not as if it automatically gets good. It only gets messy, right? Mm, mm. But maybe it has to get messy in order for it to get good. Maybe there's no way to get to the good without wading through the messy and part of our work with each other in love and in consensual loving space is to hold each other's hand and say, well, okay, we're going to wade through the messy for a minute. And a minute might be who knows how long, but we're going to stay and wade because we want to get to the other side. And you, we don't know who that will be with or whether the person who begins the waiting with you will be the person who ends the other side. Like we don't know any of those things. And all of that risk makes it terrifying because it's the nature of what it means to give any part of your heart. The risk is is scary. That's That's part of what it is to engage in intimacy. So it makes me wonder about specific things. I, in the first conversation, I spoke about being raised in a deep, deep politics of shame. And I think that's two things. I think it comes from I feel like it's an emotional inheritance since I'm not altogether sure where it comes from. But I was very much, had very, very strong good girl versus bad girl environmental shaping at school in a very, very hardcore way. And so one of the questions I've been asking is this idea of what informs our yes and whether the yes is informed by desire or fear. So the fear that if I don't do A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D will happen as opposed to what am I actually feeling at this moment? So that it is not just about finding pleasure and permission as far as the other person is concerned, but what does it mean to engage in an intimacy with your own self? So in other words, to be really exploring your own emotional panorama and spectrum in a series of encounters, even with the same person. And what I'm calling this continuous consent. So at each stage of this engagement, of this encounter, I'm saying yes or no, depending on where I sit in that particular moment. And what might it be to start to explore consent in what, I mean, are, are essentially more emotionally complicated, but maybe more honest ways? I very clearly recognize that culture of shame. I can remember being ashamed about my feelings, about being touched very early in a manner that did not make me feel safe. And I can remember feeling shame when it was that I started feeling pleasure when I started having consensual sex with other people who were seeking the same kind of pleasure I was. And I felt shame in that. And feeling great shame now as I admit to having challenges with the idea of continuous consent, as you just coined it. There's this cloud of shame that follows me. So it's almost as if it doesn't matter what I feel. I feel deep shame about it. And even as I think about being able to get to share and do the work of being with each other and sharing and, and being in the same room and, and healing, I have shame about that too. Shame as a kind of like activist that I've been for 20 years as a kind of warrior woman to admit that there are limitations in this arena for me. The fact that I'm negotiating consent uh, continuously that I think about it as a as a point of shame for myself, as in 
I haven't figured out the consent thing yet. Like, you're a big feminist. You should have figured it out already. You should have it down pat. You shouldn't be having any issue inside of your relationship. Like, I'm kind of like elbows tucked into my side now and navigating what feels to me like a lot of shame, even as I attempt to unfold and unpack the thing. Teresa B. Lindsay, your thoughts? I think the part of the honesty here is recognizing and reckoning with shame and where it comes in and where it enters into our interactions. I mean, I think shame as a framing has so much work, even for just black women and girls generally, that's not just about violence, but it's broadly part of how we come to learn about sexuality and pleasure and intimacy, which is a really, excuse my language, f***ed up way to begin thinking about pleasure and intimacy and ecstasy and the body, that shame is such an important framework. But I think unlearning shame, unlearning that process, and every engagement with a person, with a partner, can be very different. What that can conjure up in terms of shame, in terms of what consent then feels like with this particular person, because they're bringing to the table their own stories of consent, of violence, of pleasure, of intimacy. And so each one is a different kind of negotiation that can tap into or trigger certain things. And so I think being very honest um, about the ways in which this is um, something we have to be have an ongoing discussion and negotiation about within these things, but that it's okay that in these moments that there are moments where we have to sit back and be like, wait, there's some shame here. And I don't know why, because in this last encounter I had, I felt fully present and fully accessible. And the person felt that way. And in this one, there isn't something. I'm feeling something very different. I think we're not gentle enough with ourselves at the same time that we have to be brave enough to have these conversations and to do that work. So it's both being brave and gentle simultaneously, which is a delicate but necessary balance to strike when dealing with ourselves in our most intimate moments, at our most carnal moments, at our most exploratory moments, self-exploratory moments, to be able to reckon with mixed feelings, to reckon with the gray, to reckon with the work yet to be done that's being worked out as we form these intimate partnerships. And shame is one of the biggest obstacles, I think, for a lot of us, but particularly for women and girls of color who are survivors, to push through and unpack to get to a new feeling. I'm like, what's on the other side of shame, right? Is it shamelessness? Is it a demeanor of shamelessness, an armor of shamelessness? Or is there something more dynamic, more passionate, more rooted, more messy that replaces shame once we get to somewhere new in terms of defining the terms of our own intimacy? I'm really holding the space of what Dr. Treva B. Lindsay said. What is on the other side of shame? I'm Treva B. Lindsay. You're listening to The Consent Convo. Consent is swag, consent is smart, and smart is sexy. I'm Stacey Enchin, and you're listening to The Consent Convo. Consent is swag, consent is smart, and smart is sexy. You tell me it gets better, it gets better in time. You say I pull myself together, pull it together, you'll be fine. Tell me what the hell do you know, what do you know? Tell me how the hell could you know, how could you know? Till it happens to you.
it won't be real Won't know how it feels You tell me hold your head up Hold your head up And be strong Cause when you fall you gotta get up You gotta get up And move on Tell me how the hell could you talk How could you talk Cause until you walk where I walk It's just all dark Till it happens to you You don't know how it feels How it feels And for sexual survivors even when it happens to them, they want and need to make it back to themselves. Part one of this last October, The Consent Convo, a public conversation campaign on consent in partnership with Ebony.com. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women-of-color media podcast. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors this week are Stacey Anchin and Dr. Trevor B. Lindsay. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa, in Ghana on Star FM 103.5, and in Lagos, Nigeria on WFM 91.7. And we're online. Subscribe to The Spin One on iTunes. Time for part two of the Consent Convo on The Spin. Nate Parker did not understand consent at 19. Donald Trump did not understand it at 59 and still doesn't at 71. Derek Rose does not understand consent at 28. All three are high-profile men. Derek Rose is an African-American athlete. He now plays basketball for the New York Knicks. Before that, he played for the Chicago Bulls. Rose has just been found not liable in a civil suit of gang rape. The charge was brought by a young woman who was in a relationship with Rose. She alleges that Rose and two other men, Randall Hampton, Rose's manager, and Ryan Allen, all raped her in her apartment in 2013. The young woman said she was drunk and unable to consent. During what was a 20-month relationship, 
The case revealed that Derek Rhodes had repeatedly asked the young woman for group sex. She said no. He requested she engage group sex on a text to her. She said no. He broke up with her because she refused to have group sex. One of the people with whom he was suggesting group sex was Randall Hampton. Hampton was one of the men with Rose that night when he would later claim she consented to group sex and she would later say she was gang raped. In his June 17th deposition, lawyers asked Rose about consent. The exchange went as follows, quote, question. Do you have an understanding as to the word consent? Derek Rose. No. But can you tell me? Question. I just wanted to know if you had an understanding of consent. Derek Rose. No. This was reported by Think Progress, who asked Derek Rose and his lawyers for further comment. They came back with this, quote, Rose's attorneys did not deny that during his deposition, Rose did not know the definition of consent, unquote. So that mirrors an exchange between Ebony.com's Brittany Danielle and Nate Parker about his 1999 sexual assault case, for which he was acquitted. Speaking to Danielle about himself at 19, he is asked what he knew about consent. He says, quote, To be honest, not very much. It wasn't a conversation people were having. When I think about 1999, I think about being a 19-year-old kid, and I think about my attitude and behavior just toward women, objectifying them. I never thought about consent as a definition, especially as I do now. I think the definitions of so many things have changed. Let me be the first to say I can't remember ever having a conversation about the definition of consent when I was a kid, unquote. In this four-week series of conversations on consent, what has become clear is none of us heard the word consent or fully understood it growing up. Women and men alike, we were all figuring it out, stumbling along the way. What these high-profile cases reveal is that as adults, young men and old men still don't know what consent is. Now, the court is a blunt instrument with sexual assault, and it doesn't serve a better understanding of consent. Derek Rose admitted he did not know what consent was and was then found not liable in this civil suit alleging gang rape. Does he know what consent is now? And for every sexual assault survivor, there is a perpetrator. Many women don't ever get to court or go to court. That doesn't change the reality of an assault and a perpetrator. Now, the majority of perpetrators are not high profile. They are within community, within family. They are neighbors and family friends. So let's talk consent in a world of silenced survivors, untried or unconvicted men who do not understand consent and us figuring this out. Dr. Teresa B. Lindsay. I think this moment, 2016, has been powerfully revelatory about how much work we have to do and when that work needs to begin. Because we know so much of this is happening before 18, so much of this is happening in our communities, in our family units, in our kinship networks, that when you asked the question earlier about when you first learned about consent, I could not pinpoint the actual word consent in a kind of vocabulary memory. And that idea that in 1999 we were talking about this differently suggests to me that, one, I'm still not sure Nate Parker had any kind of conversation or really true understanding at 19, let alone now at almost 40, that these conversations haven't necessarily pushed him to a greater understanding, but that consent as something that women are entitled to 
in a real and significant way is suggestive of a shift that has happened, I think, in the last 20 to 25 years about how women understand their own bodies and how men have to be retaught to understand women's bodies, women's sexuality, women's pleasure. And that's not something that had to be thought about. I mean, and we only recently in terms of modern history, legal history, can a husband be convicted of raping or harming his wife through sexual violence. So that is suggestive of the idea that women's bodies still function as property and that the idea of no, particularly for people who feel entitled to the body, if you look at the case of Derek Rose, the entitlement, despite actually hearing the word no, is very indicative of the base level that we're at, the ground floor. I don't even know if we're on the ground floor, below the ground floor on building up real and new and viable conceptualizations of consent that account for pleasure, intimacy, and women's voices and women's choices and women's bodies. We don't start there. We don't start there now. We start from the encounter and then whether these things happen and then we go back in her path, but we never go back in his path. We never track how he understands sex, how he understands consent, which is what made the Rose case so striking that he provides a certain kind of history in his own words that suggests, I probably have been committing crimes like this for years without even knowing it. And there are women in my life who have been the victims of this and maybe knowing or not knowing in this instance, too. And he's giving us that history. Usually we don't even get that with perpetrators of sexual violence, that history. But we do know how many partners the woman, the victim, has. We do know how many times she's had sex, what sexual acts she's performed, what's her Instagram like, what's her Facebook like, what do these things tell us. So shifting the narrative also means saying we need to look at the past and history and past encounters with men to truly understand what builds and makes a rapist beyond just this idea of the encounter. We have to understand the culture that's doing that, the networks that this is in, and how these people are learning or unlearning notions of consent. Stacey Anchin. I grew up Christian, and so many of the women around me and so many of the women I've met across the globe are Christian or at least religious. The idea of the beginning of mankind, that narrative of Adam and Eve, it starts with these beings are created from the earth. You know, and they're filled with innocence and left innocent as uh, naked as babies in this place. And what creates the door through which man has fallen into sin, into, you know, all of the negative aspects of humanity is the portal of this woman tempting him to do the thing that the all-powerful, all-good God has said to him, do not do it. But he's not to be blamed for it because he is the one that was tempted by this woman and the serpent and all of that. So even the beginning, even the one of the most popular stories about the beginning of mankind, which in a weird kind of way mirrors and echoes the notion of the creation of children, which, you know, echoes and creates shadows around the idea of sex. Like how it is that we come into carnal knowledge, how it is that the human race is created, which is our own sex and pregnancy. And of course, it is the woman's fault. So all of what you just said, Doc, is it's because women are, of course, the temptresses. Men are assumed to be inherently steadfast and noble and good. And so they can only be lured out of that goodness and that nobility by women and their wiles. So I just want to maybe just drop that as a backdrop to our story, to our narrative. And then to continue to say that we have on tape the candidate who is one of our major parties' representative, the nominee. He didn't even know he was being taped. 
So he was speaking in the freest way that people can speak in the locker room where we know men are supposed to be free and are supposed to speak their mind, where he was heard saying that he actually does assault women. And when women come forward, there are still questions around whether they are telling the truth or not, even though we have him on tape before they come forward saying that he actually does this thing of which they have accused him. And now we still don't believe them. And still, the conversation is still about whether they're telling the truth or not. And he's still like calling them liars uh, uh, in this way. So the, the narrative of not believing the woman, it doesn't kind of like spring up from nowhere. And, and my own daughter, who, as I said, is five years old, we started having the constant conversation from the very first conversation I started to have with her. Like before she arrived, when I would say to her, this is your space, this is your body. And so I started with saying, no one can pick you up if you don't want to. Oh, you know, even when she was a baby and I had her in my arms and I touched her face and she would turn away her face and, you know, make a face at me and start crying. I would say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you didn't want me to touch your face. Not because you can't speak for whatever reason, whether it's um, you can't speak because you are tired or you're frightened. I've tried to teach her her whole life that the, the consent has more than just her mouth attached to it, that it's more than just what I hear from some single word about consent. And, and I think that that has to begin. I spend so much of my time going across college campuses and theaters and gathering groups and workshops across the globe, across the U.S., talking about consent and, and trying to break down what that means. And most of the young men I talk to about consent, they don't fully understand what it means. They don't have a kind of working definition of consent. And they certainly have very skewed ideas about what makes consent. I remember being in a room full of about 20 young men and having the conversation with them about what consent is. And all of them were a little bit shy, a little bit uh, giggly, a little bit um, unsure about what to say. But when we pressed them and when we pushed them and we started having conversation about what consent really meant, the consensus in the room, and when I say consensus, I mean more than two-thirds of the room felt that if the girl was drinking and if she was laughing and if she was dancing with you, it meant that you had consent to treat her body in a way that felt good to you, whether she was saying something else or not. And that is perhaps more frightening than anything else I have heard from affable young men, young men who seem like they're good men, young men who are at least interested in engaging the conversation of consent. They themselves feel as if the girl is laughing, if she is drinking, and if she is dancing with you on campus at a party, it means that she's given you consent to be intimate with her, to touch her body, to be sexual with her. I think the conversation needs to start way before college. I think the conversation needs to start way before it is permissible and, and they have the space and the beds and the freedom away from their own families to make their own decisions about sex, especially when they're living with young women who have been taught the opposite, as in you don't have the space and the permission. And therefore, if she says yes yesterday, it doesn't mean it's yes for today, the way that in the conversation around the Nate Parker case where she said yes, and because she had had sex with him beforehand, that it created a, a conversation about whether she could then be in a space to, to, to say no in the present. It's wild, and we have a lot of work to do, but I am optimistic. You know, I go from place to place, as I said, and I meet all these young women who are very committed to the conversation around consent, and we are at a particularly critical moment in, 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 you know, in, in the media, in the conversation around consent, in, in kind of the global power of women, as we become poised to have this conversation around female leadership, that we not only can lean in the white 
White House, in Congress, in Parliament, in places of political power, but we also have the power to lead within the context of what happens to our bodies, when it happens, how it happens, and why it happens, as you said before. Two specific things just to close. One, um, listening to you both, is about the necessity of unlearning the notion of women as property. And the second part is reimagining consent as a continuum, as opposed to a moment, so that every moment of the continuum matters. Because as you said, Stacey Ann, in the Nate Parker case, both what he thought and what was reflected back at him during the trial was that one of the reasons he was acquitted was that he had had a previous consensual encounter, which she also accepted. And the nature of that meant that the next encounter could not possibly therefore be non-consensual. Within the Derek Rose case, that was also what was mentioned, that this had been a 20-month relationship and he and his lawyers had said every single encounter had been consensual. And then I thought, yeah, except for the encounters where she said, no, she's not doing it, after which you broke up, after which she alleges rape about the very thing she refused to do and for which you broke up with her for. With the reimagining, I think about this idea of we conflate consent and character so that in sexual assault cases, the law tries a woman's character as the victim and it doesn't deal with the perpetrator's understanding of consent. And not just the perpetrators, but the injury selection. Part of reimagining consent with a sexual assault trial is that in jury selection, one of the questions that needs to be asked of jurors is, how do you define consent? What is your understanding of consent? And in the same way that jurors can be included or excluded based on their responses, that needs to be one of the ways in which we reframe consent in order to engage the law in a less what I call blunt force trauma kind of way for the victim who has to endure the brutal cross-examination, the picking apart of her entire life. But it's this conflation of consent and character. So it's not about whether or not the man had consent. It's about what kind of character you had that would enable him to justify consent being a believable proposition. So with our final thought for you, as you reframe consent and reimagine consent, what is a thing that you would really like to see in order for this reimagining and reframing, centralizing the experiences of survivors of sexual violence? What would that be? Starting with you, Stacey Ann Chin, and then closing with you, Dr. Trufa B. Lindsay. Stacey Ann. First, we have to admit to ourselves that sexual violence happens to a wide range of women that it doesn't happen to a woman. We spend a lot of time discrediting women's stories because, oh, she's so sexual and she's so beautiful and she's been so free with her sexuality that she couldn't have possibly said no or she's not attractive enough and therefore why would this attractive, seemingly powerful man prey on her or even have any desire for her. We have to take out of the equation that it's a certain kind of woman that this kind of crossing of her boundary, this kind of transgression of her boundaries happens. We have to begin there. And then we have to know that the way that we talk about consent, the way that we talk about pleasure, the way that we talk about the sexual life of the two people involved or three people or ten people involved, that it has to be a conversation that includes, as you said, more than the flesh of the moment, and it has to include what people know, what they've been taught, and then what they know and what they've been taught cannot be an excuse 
for their behavior because a lot of the Nate Parker conversation has been about how it is that he didn't really understand consent and therefore he didn't really do anything wrong. I think that if you don't know that killing a person is wrong, I don't think that you go unpunished or there's no consequence for you killing a person. I think it needs to become a conversation where transgressing these boundaries on a woman's body, whether you know it was wrong or not, whether you understand it to be wrong, whether there were mitigating circumstances, that I think that there should be a no tolerance for crossing those boundaries and that there should be consequence and that consequence should be known to young people as soon as you can start talking about it. Closing thought to you, Dr. Truva B. Lindsay. I think something very tangible I'd like to see is that sexual violence education and, and this will also go with the improvement of sexuality education in our schools and in our institutions start extraordinarily early at the very point that we can honestly begin talking with children about their bodies and about what it means to move through the world with your body and in relationship to other bodies, that this is an integral part of our education, that we're starting there, that we're giving communities tools to do that. So even outside of formal educational institutions, that consent and how we're talking about consent, how we're talking about learning how not to rape (laughs) is part of sex education is part of body education because if we start from a sex positive framework that we are carnal beings that we desire sex and touch and intimacy and all of these things now how do we do that healthily how do we do that in a way that every person is autonomous and like they have a choice in what is happening and if we begin teaching sex education that begins like that i think we do shift the conversation on this and that centers experiences of violence that have already happened to use that as a narrative. How do we get past this? As we said, how do we unlearn what we've learned? And I think we have to start, and I'm someone who advocates starting sex education very early. I mean, elementary school early, young elementary school early in terms of what is appropriate at each different stage of understanding the body. And at each different stage, we need to be having these conversations about consent and sexual violence that are based in saying, we want people to have pleasurable, intimate, and dynamic experiences when their bodies are coming into contact with other people. And so in order to do that, here's what this looks like. Here's what good, healthy interactions look like. And here's what troubling situations look like. Here's what violent situations look like. And this is how we get past that. And if that not ingrained in the very ways in which we learn sex and desire and intimacy, I think we're going to be rehashing these conversations over and over and over again. Boys and men have to learn to hear and heed no. My name is no. My sign is no. My number is no. Mm. You need to let it go. Mm. You need to let it go. Mm. Need to let it go. My name is no. My sign is no. My number is no. You need to let it go. You need to let it go. Need to let it go. First you gonna say you ain't running game. Thinking I believe in every word. Call me beautiful, so original. Telling me I'm not like other girls. I was in my zone before you came along. Now I'm thinking maybe you should go. Blah blah blah. I be like nah, ta da ah, ta da no no no. All my ladies, listen up. If that boy ain't giving up, lick your lips and swing your hips, girl. All you gotta say. My name is no, my sign is no, my number is no mm. You need to let it go, mm. you need to let it go, mm. need to let it go mm. Thank you in advance, 
is no, my time is no, my number is no. You need to let it go, you need to let it go, need to let it go. My name is no, my sign is no. we need to reimagine this continuous consent. You might say yes to the date, yes to the first drink, yes to the first kiss. But the first time you say no, that ends consent. So 
Give me that green light, green light, don't you say no Baby, I can't stop, won't stop until you say so Give me that green light, green light, don't you say no Baby, I can't stop, won't stop until you say so Morning, give me that green light. Morning, give me. Morning, give me that green light. Come on, give me that green light. You can let your hair hang down, but only if it feels right. Only if it feels your hour. Thank you to Stacey Ann Chin and Dr. Treva B. Lindsay. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to hear myself. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. This is the Consent Convo, a global public conversation campaign on consent in partnership with Ebony.com. Subscribe to The Spin on iTunes. It's under The Spin One. And check out Ebony.com. The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Arma. Some people do it comically. Fruits of freedom, equality. Invest your money properly. People owe me your policy. Intellectual property. Stealing stolen commodities. Souls controlling robbery. Soul lack of commodity. Clones copycats bother me. Mine on black. That's follow me. Honestly, honestly, honestly. All these jokers economy. Puppets with no autonomy. Yup, it's fooling the time. I see you looking, but you better take it easy. Tell your goons that they better take it easy. Here comes the rocket launcher. Take it easy. Take it easy, take it easy Too much ex-mommy, take it easy Good with the sex, you be like, take it easy Mommy, take it easy Take it easy, you better take it easy You moving bricks, but you better take it easy Here's a tip you too flash. I don't tip twice, but your best friend DT. And that dog sniff in the bag ain't last seat. And I ain't rhyme in a minute, but y'all ain't catch up. And I ain't blood on your shirt, man. That's ketchup. Picture cleft, get the writer to give him help. I'd rather kill myself, become a ghost, and write for myself. Cause I'm the top celebrity, top celebrity, top celebrity MC. I flow for the thugs, gypsies, and hippies. Yeah, the ghetto might scroll with a nat turn of flow. Malcolm X come out, hit the Ku Club show. I see you looking, but you better than getting in. Tell you this program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.